Hi, this is Jamil. If you're listening to this, you probably aren't satisfied with the way peace and conflict are covered in the media. I started the War Stories, Peace Stories project as a global initiative to bring journalists and peace builders together to help reimagine the way the news media covers peace and conflict. I felt that it's imperative that we learn about peace, how to build it and sustain it, and that reaching journalists was a great place to start. With this podcast, our new journal, Nuance, and our Peace Doc film series, we celebrate journalism that looks at conflict differently that doesn't fan the flames, that demonstrates that there are alternatives to war and violence. Building peace and sustaining peace may seem like an impossibility, especially now when there's so much war and violence in the news. The problem is that if we see peace as impossible, it will remain impossible. Help us reshape the narrative on peace and conflict. Please make a tax-deductible donation today Go to our website, warstoriespeacestories.org, and click the Donate button on the top right of the page. We've also got a link in the show notes to this episode. Your donation is key to helping us sustain this work. We thank you very much. Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about peace, conflict, and the media. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. There's something that has always baffled me. Why are Americans so passive in the face of massive expenditures for defense that crowd out spending on human needs like education, healthcare, infrastructure, etc.? How do we get to this point of sort of unquestioning acceptance of military expenditures? Not surprisingly, the answer is complex. Today, we have the perfect person to help us explore these issues. Stephanie Savell is a co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown University. Stephanie is an anthropologist, and she works with a team of researchers from a variety of disciplines. The scope of the Costs of War Project includes spending, but is much more holistic than that. The project examines costs in terms of lives lost, injuries, effects on mental health, long-term costs like veteran care, damage to economies, and more, both at home and around the world. Stephanie, thanks for joining us today. I'm looking forward to talking about these issues with you. Thanks so much for having me. Stephanie, I'd like you to start by talking about talking briefly about how we got into this place where Americans take it for granted that we have to have such a massive military presence. How do we buy into this narrative? I'm an anthropologist, so part of what I look at are the cultural belief systems that have led us to this place, as you say, this kind of unquestioning of what I see as a militarized status quo in this country. Across the political spectrum, there's this acceptance of the idea that Americans need to do something in the world, and that do something means using military force. I think that there is this assumption that war is just part of human nature. There's a myth that We need to spend all this money on our military in order to support our troops, which couldn't be further from the truth. There's just kind of a lot of myths about war that we have in this country. uh, And our research tries to deconstruct those and promote a, a more radical kind of big picture questioning about war and what keeps people safe, really. I think some of the myths began with World War II is, you know, the myth of the good war. How has that myth shaped the way Americans look at subsequent conflicts? 
Absolutely. Yeah, there is a myth about World War II. And the United States, I think, had a great run in World War II in some ways. I mean, it was devastating, of course, for many, many families and communities. But on a big picture level, the U.S. went in, we saved the day, it was relatively quick, it was relatively cheap. And there was a clear sense that the U.S. intervention really tipped the scales in favor of the side that we were on. And and in some ways, I think the U.S. has been trying to recreate that ever since it tried and failed in Vietnam. It tried and failed in response to 9-11. But that was one of the big reasons why the U.S. decided to treat the 9-11 terror attacks as a war problem. In the past, terror attacks had been treated as maybe a criminal problem going after the perpetrators, or there's any number of ways that governments can choose to address that kind of an, an attack. But it, in response, there was, there was a war. Right. I mean, you look at the comparison between the way we dealt with the first Gulf War and the, the Iraq War. I mean, the first Gulf War was surgical to some extent. They went in to rescue Kuwait. And when they were done, they left. But going back a little bit, at the end of the Cold War, there was a sense that perhaps foreign policy didn't have to be so military-focused, that maybe we could get further with diplomacy. There was no, no longer a big rival ideology as, as communists had been or had been perceived to be. How do you think things changed after that? Yeah, so at the end of the Cold War, for the first time in a long time, the U.S. industrial base kind of went away from massive investments in weapons. And the defense contracting industry that was reliant on the U.S. state of war or readiness for war was scared about their profits. And so there's research on our site that shows that the military contracting industry, these big defense contractors, um, systematically went into kind of lobbying mode in the sense of they embedded their subcontracting and supply chains very widely and deeply across the American landscape, such that every district and in many, many states was involved in manufacturing. The notorious and extreme example is Lockheed Martin's F-35 fighter jet, which is actually built in 45 different states. Wow. Can you believe it? That's amazing. So it's, it's, I know. So, so this was a very systematic effort to link economic prosperity in all across the country with the military industrial complex. And it really worked. It really built a sense in the American public that if you're going to cut military spending, you're going to impact American workers. We hear this all the time. And meanwhile, the defense industry is engaging in really massive amounts of lobbying. They can afford it, right? The, the Pentagon budget now is over $800 billion a year. So they're, they're spending massive amounts of money on advocacy on Capitol Hill. I think one stat that's really telling is there were, in the, over the past five years, there have been 700 lobbyists per year for the defense industry. Wow. Working on Capitol Hill. That's more than one for every member of Congress because there's about 535 members of Congress. So it's, it's just a, it's it's a, it's massive. a massive, 
Right. It is. And and then not that's not to mention the revolving door that we hear about, the same people going back and forth between congressional staff and the defense industry. We we see that revolving door all the time still in the United States. Yeah. So there's a really a, a variety of methods that they use to entrench not only the ideas, but the but the advocacy for it. That's right. And and meanwhile, the American troops are not benefiting from this massive amount that the U.S. spends every year, this 800, over $800 billion at this point on the Pentagon budget. U.S. troops are, their their salaries aren't necessarily going up. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's, it's this over half of that, so over $300 billion every year is going directly to these contracting companies and their CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So these companies are just making money off of this system. And one of the myths is that the military provides jobs and a pipeline towards education for young people, many of whom are economically disadvantaged. But does it? Yeah. And I think in some ways it is this country's only jobs program for those kinds of communities, low income, people of color, looking for a steady income and a kind of a way up the social ladder. And and I, I think that's a big reason why a lot of people join join the armed forces. So we need to remember that. But I think the important question is to ask is what kind of a job then is it? And and to look at the fact that there are actually very high hunger rates in even active duty service members, the ones who are just kind of enlisted. You look at the mental health crisis that's facing service members today and the fact that four times as many people, as many veterans of the post 9-11 wars have committed suicide than have died in the actual combat itself. So it's something like a little over 7,000 service members have died in combat since 9-11. Well, it's over 30,000 that have died by suicide. Wow. That's a staggering statistic. It's, it's awful. Yeah. It's really awful. And when I talk about this country's militarism, I think that's so important to underscore is I'm not saying anything against anyone who's serving in the military, who, who is, is working in the armed forces. Because it's it's not necessarily like they can be seen in some ways just as much as kind of a victim of this system. And the fact that the U.S. doesn't have other mechanisms of of kind of creating, lifting people out of poverty, if you will, or creating kind of better, steady income for for working class people. So all of that, I think, is really important to keep to to be anti-militarism is not to be anti-military. That's very different. And I have. A lot of people who who are in my classes, service members and veterans who really appreciate the the kinds of work that we're doing. And the other things that we could be spending the money on, like infrastructure and education, healthcare, those are all much more labor intensive. I mean, they actually produce many more jobs than, than the military does. That's exactly right. So this is a, a key piece of research from my colleague, Heidi Peltier, who works with me at Cost of War. She's an economist. And she's, she's shown that per dollar spent, if the U.S. were to invest money in education or healthcare or green energy or any number of other sectors, the U.S. would create far more jobs as a result of that investment. So she 
calls this an opportunity cost of war because it's meant that by investing so much in the, this country's so-called defense budget, we have lost the opportunity to create millions of jobs. Right. And she's also written about alternative energy and that the jobs that could come from all the infrastructure needs of the non-fossil economy are, are huge. Absolutely. So, so one thing that's really, I think I read a piece of analysis recently that was really interesting, talking about how weapons manufacturing since the Cold War has become the U.S.'s competitive advantage in a lot of ways compared to other really high-powered economies. And it doesn't have to be this way. Like if the U.S. were to choose a different course at, say, this issue of, of climate and green energy and alternative technologies and decide that that really is the way that, that we as a nation are going to invest our surplus and, and invest in innovation. And we want that to be our competitive advantage. Think what that would do Matt, instead uh, for the world. It's staggering. I mean, the difference right. could be huge. Not to mention when it comes to fossil fuels itself, that that is actually one of the major reasons why the U.S. has been so involved in the Middle East is to secure access to oil over, over many, many years now. So not only is that kind of a reason or justification that the U.S. has strategically for intervening in the Middle East in the name of so-called stability or access to these resources, but then the military is it is the single largest institutional carbon emitter in the world, the U.S. military. And so it's a massive contributor to climate change as an institution. And if you think about the, the kind of irony of, of that cycle, going to war to secure access to oil and then right. ending vast amount of oil to, to secure that access. Right. right? It's, it's like, what's wrong with this picture? Right, exactly. I mean, another myth is through U.S. intervention in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, we're able to spread liberal democratic values and support women's independence. Mm. What do you think of that myth? Oh, that's a big one. So I'm teaching a course this semester called The Cost of War, and I've really been emphasizing this point for my students because I think it is hard as an American to pierce through the, the kind of finery, the window dressing of liberalism and to say that this talk of saving Afghan and Iraqi women from their men, right? And, and the, the idea of even human rights can be used in a way that actually is just lip service. Mm -hmm. It's not, when you look at the actions behind it, that's not necessarily what the U.S. is doing is, is kind of attempting to preserve or save human rights or advocate for human rights. When you see the kind of the, the death and destruction in the wake of, of U.S. military action. Here's another myth. And I think as an anthropologist, this is a good one for you to look at or, or talk, talk to. War is inevitable. It's part of human nature as history has shown. So first of all, there's many, many cultures throughout time, history and space, geography that choose to resolve conflicts or have chosen to resolve conflicts in ways other than through war. Not only that, but I think an even more compelling argument is that if you go into a war-torn country or place and you talk to people on the ground, 
what you learn is that there are so many more people involved in and invested in promoting peace than there are who are the ones who are actually doing the fighting. And you see this consistently in, in all kinds of different places, that, that people care about peace. People work so hard for it. It's just astounding. I was in Niger earlier this year, and, and I was so struck by everyone from the college students in the capital who are working on peaceful protests and, and peace building in their kind of local neighborhoods to women's groups, to imams and, and kind of religious leaders who are working on peace. It's really striking when you investigate uh, what people are doing. And we're selling massive amounts of weapons to other countries, which is further destabilizing. I mean, we are. And that is really the one of the worst things about all of this is that the U.S. is selling and supplying weapons and equipment to so many different countries around the world. It's a huge, massive enterprise. And some would say it's behind a lot of what the U.S. calls training and assistance in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Again, that kind of window dressing language for something that looks far different in practice. But, but those weapons and the funding, the, the kind of military mindsets that go with them, feed into these really kind of complex local conflicts and intensify the violence. And I've, I, I did a deep dive here. I'm thinking about Burkina Faso. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, it's a region of the world, the Sahel, West Africa, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali it has been seeing an explosion of violence linked to Islamist militant groups in recent years, since uh, about 2011. And it's just kind of grown exponentially in the, the past few years. And the U.S. set up a war on terror paradigm response to the growth of these attacks in the very early days following 9-11, starting in 2002, 2003, 2004. The U.S. has been training and equipping and funding these regions' militaries to respond to the problem of terror attacks with uh, their own wars on terror. And it has been incredibly counterproductive, actually, because in Burkina Faso, where I've done work on the ground in Niger, it's, it's, it's legacies of colonialism, it's all kinds of power relations. But what it means is that there are certain ethnic groups who are more powerful and who are the ones who are in government. And then there are other ethnic groups that are not. And in particular in Burkina Faso, the Fulani, which is a herding ethnic group, they've practiced Islam for centuries, far before colonialism. And they are the scapegoats. They're the ones that the government calls terrorists. And so the, the military is disappearing people. It's attacking neighborhoods and communities indiscriminately of Fulani people. And this is, among, among other things, this is just the best recruiting device for these Islamist militant groups. So people are flocking to these movements to take revenge, to retaliate against government violence that they see as ethnically oriented. And it's just kind of perpetuating this incredibly complex cycle. And another way to look at it is if we put the same kind of money into building up a stronger farming economy or, or helping with education and, and yeah. health care, all those things would actually improve the situation 
Absolutely. If you look at the real root of what's going on in the Sahel, at least where I've spoken to people on the ground, is people are just just fed up and angry to to live the injustice of living in that level of of poverty with the government corruption. And it's just this kind of boiling over rage at the inequality and the injustice and and not having access to education, not having access to jobs or healthcare or really anything in a lot of places uh, outside the capitals. And and that is, is driving the violence that the root of things. And so when the U.S. signals, we, we are really important imperial power. And when we, when the U.S. signals like the solution to terrorism is a war on terror, then you're, you're completely obfuscating the, these kind of structural injustices that are, are the, at the root of these conflicts and, and signaling that that's the way to solve them. When if the U.S. were to say, I'm going to take that same millions, hundreds of millions, and invest that in the, the kind of social welfare infrastructure that would actually go far more to addressing the root causes. Yeah, I mean, there are even some military leaders who've recognized that. I mean, I, I can't remember which general, it might have been Mark Milley, but who said, if you want to reduce the arms budget, you should increase the foreign aid budget. That's right. And, and again, the, the Pentagon talks about the three Ds, defense, diplomacy, and development as being three equal branches of the United States government abroad. Diplomacy being carried out by the State Department, defense, of course, by the Pentagon, and then development by USAID. What happens in practice is that the Pentagon gets a far bigger D (laughs) than the other two, right? It's a far bigger share of the way that U.S. foreign policy plays out on the ground is very, very militarized. Well, there's also a domestic aspect to this thing. I mean, one issue related to the militarization of policing in America is the Atlantic Public Safety Training Center near Atlanta, also known as Cop City in the state of Georgia. It's a big $90 million, 85-acre police complex where police would receive military-style training. Your colleague, Deepa Kumar, a media studies professor at Rutgers, recently published a paper with Cost of War Project, Why Media Conflation of Activism with Terrorism Has Dire Consequences. And she talks about Cop City. I mean, the the coverage of the 42 activists who were arrested has really distorted the picture in a lot of ways. It is. And she talks about the role of the media as the fourth estate in democracy, really playing an important role in theory in holding the government accountable for the values that it espouses. And what happened in the case of Cop City, she shows, is that the leading mainstream newspapers in the United States talk about lack of balance, if balance is the goal <laughs> of unbiased media coverage. It was a quite unbalanced approach. So, so they, for example, took the government of Georgia, which was the one that was accusing these activists of being terrorists, and applying terrorism laws in their in their criminal charges at, at kind of face value, and and there were um, far more quotes, for example, of government and police sources than there were of activists or people supporting the activists. This changed a little bit as time went on. So at the very beginning, 
the the media coverage was very, very biased in favor of the government of Georgia's angle on things and calling these activists terrorists, people who are kind of wrecking public property and all that. And then as time went on and the case gained more attention, some sources like the Washington Post, most notably, uh, did a much better job going in on the ground, talking to the activists and figuring out their perspective. I think the, the holy grail in this inquiry is, can we change the narrative? And the other big question is how? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that is uh, really, I wish I knew the answer to that. One of the things that, I mean, I do think journalists have a really big role to play here and, and editors, the people who decide what actually gets published. Exactly. We can never forget them. Right. <laughs> what I want to see, what we work for at the Cost of War Project, is more critical questioning. Is this military activity in, in the counterterror wars keeping Americans safer or anyone else in the world for that matter? Is this actually doing what it says it's doing right? and doing the opposite of what I described in the case of Cop City, which is not taking what the government says just kind of at blank face value? At one time I had the New York Times a New York Times reporter tell me that he was including the progressive perspective by quoting, he had his go-to source was a former official in the Obama administration, which, which actually was quite hawkish on the issues of, of foreign policy. Just, a, just kind of like a, a lazy journalism that, that doesn't bother to consider alternative perspectives to this militarized status quo. And lazy in a structural sense, not on the not saying that individual journalists are lazy. They work very hard, and it's a hard world to be a journalist right now in the U.S. It is a very hard world. I mean, in your previous contact with journalists, what kinds of ideas or messages did you have you found that journalists respond to? Part of it, I think that so often the conversation, the journalistic conversation on about U.S. foreign policy is a is a superficial one that stays on the level of strategy. So what could we do slightly better? What could we have done differently to make the withdrawal from Afghanistan smoother instead of the, the big picture? And so when I work with journalists, a lot of times I have really good relationships with a lot of the journalists that I've worked with. We have conversations about ideas. I'm, I'm constantly pushing some of these bit, this big picture questioning that I'm talking about and say, let's not stick to the, that level of strategy. Let's think about issues that underlie the strategy. Why is the U.S. military in so many places? What makes the U.S. feel entitled to, to have a territorial presence in 800 military bases overseas? Yeah, good question. Let's think <laughs> about structural racism, right? I'm, I'm getting at some of those kinds of ideas through the evidence and saying, this is what the evidence says about U.S. counterterrorism strategy. It's been incredibly ineffective and it's killed millions of people. So constantly kind of coming back to, this is what the research says. This is what the research shows us. Let's ask the questions that need to be asked based on this research. And, and I think that we do need to, we can't forget the political economic reasons behind some of these myths sure. that I was talking about initially, right? The, the, the DOD's advertising budget, the Department of Defense, is, is massive. They spend 
I mean, think about how at big sporting events in this country, you so often see kind of propaganda, right? Flyovers and that sort of thing. There, there are just so many ways that they kind of infiltrate the public consciousness that Hollywood films, for example, that want to use, uh, army equipment for their, for their films. They, a lot of times the, the Pentagon will loan them the equipment in, in exchange for being able to have a say in the script. <laughs> yeah, you can borrow my battleship and I'll, uh... <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll decide what can't go in your in your film, and and so the, the 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 cultural narratives that we get are shaped by these kinds of systems. The tackling the military industrial complex is is enormous. I mean, it's a huge beast of a problem. It feels completely daunting to think about it that way. But but it's in the details that matter. It's in it's in you can sign up for. Emails from groups like Peace Action, for example, or the Friends Committee, which is a Quaker group that does awesome anti-militarism work. Sure. And you get you get an email in your inbox saying, oh, Congress is debating funding the F-35 program. Can you write to your Congress member and tell them that you don't want this funded? And by the way, here's an email that you can use to do so. And so you click a button and you send a letter to your congressperson that way. And that matters. The, the, well, in theory. <laughs> it matters more in... Some states than it does in others. Well, yeah. And at some moments, I think this particular political moment is one in which we're unfortunately seeing that it doesn't matter as much as we would like it to. But oftentimes it, it does matter a great deal to members of Congress, what their constituents have to say. And, and so, so kind of breaking this down, finding those kind of movement groups that we can all support and be part of and just joining this broader effort to kind of tackle this one little bit at a time, whether it's peace journalism or defunding the F-35 program or whatever piece kind of resonates with us personally. We all, everything is needed. All, we, all the force of, of our desire for, for a different system is needed. And, and I think we can all get involved in different ways. And how has the, the work you've been doing impacted policy? Do you have any examples? Yes. We do a ton of work behind the scenes to connect our research, not only to journalists and editors, but also to movements and policymakers. And we do uh, a lot of educational outreach on Capitol Hill. Every time we have a report come out, we're sending that out to congressional offices. We're having one-on-one meetings and those sorts of things. Um, We've seen some results. We've seen our research get pulled into floor debates, for example, by Congress people who are advocating for pulling troops out of Somalia. That was one of the recent debates that happened in Congress. Unfortunately, the that wasn't one for our side. There was there were too many members who voted in favor of keeping troops in Somalia. But our our research came at a really critical moment in the vote. We we released a piece of research on Somalia. And that was circulated to congressional offices. And we had people tell us that that research influenced their members' votes on that day. So that's one example. Another one is that when President Biden was withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, he actually cited cost of war research in his speech. So he said, researchers at Brown University estimate that the war in Afghanistan has cost $2 trillion. Now, that may not sound like much, but... (laughs) What he was doing there was basically not using the Pentagon's numbers because they've said 
that the war in Afghanistan has cost $1 trillion. We say it's cost double because when you think about caring for veterans of the war, interest on war debt, all of these other things that go into what a war costs, budgetarily speaking, that there are far more things. And so he was essentially kind of saying that that those things must be taken into account as well. So those are, those are the kinds of things that for us feel like a real accomplishment when we're able to change discourse at that level. That is. Well, this has been great. I think that we've covered a lot of the things that were on my agenda, but there may be something that you would have liked to have said, have liked to have been talked about that maybe I missed. So I, I'd love you to oh, feel yeah, free yeah. to Thanks. think about that. Thanks, Jamil. This has really been uh, a pleasure to talk to you as well. We just released a new piece of my research that I wanted to share with you. It's a, a map that shows all the places in the world where the U.S. is engaged in some sort of counterterrorism activity. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up. That was actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Well, it shows 78 countries total in which the U.S. is engaged in some sort of counterterrorism operation. The large majority of that is 73 countries where the U.S. is doing this training and assistance in counterterrorism. Um, but then there are the kind of high intensity action, four to five places where the U.S. has been engaged in dropping air and drone strikes against militants directly. So that's that's happened in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Syria, and most likely Yemen in the past three years. And this is under the Biden administration. So this map only covers 2021 to 2023. And then in combat, ground exchange of gunfire in nine places, including in Afghanistan, Iraq, Kenya, Mali, Somalia, Syria, United Arab Emirates, and Yemen. This is actual, actually a war, if you, if you think about what a, what a war means. Right. It doesn't get much publicity, but it is. Exactly. And so the point of the research is to show that, again, this myth that the U.S. war on terror is over now that U.S. troops have left Afghanistan is, is just not at all true. And that this counterterrorism apparatus that got put into place after 9-11 is just grinding onwards. And it's just caused ma massive amounts of death and destruction and suffering. It's not, it's not keeping Americans any safer. Stephanie, tell us where our listeners can find the map. They can find that at our website. So you go to www.cost, with an S, costsofwar.org. And you'll find it right there on the homepage. Great. So, Stephanie, thank you very much for joining us today. This was so, I really appreciate you sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. You can find a link to Stephanie Savell's map of U.S. counterterrorism operations in our show notes. We've also got links there to some of the other research from the Cost of War project that we discussed in this episode. I'm proud to announce the inaugural issue of Nuance, an online journal from the War Stories, Peace Stories Project. The issue includes essays by some of our podcast guests, including Elizabeth Hume, CEO of the Alliance for Peacebuilding, and Deborah Douglas from the Solutions Journalism Network. We've also got some stunning photos of life in eastern Ukraine by Anastasia Taylor Lind. It's available now at thewarstoriespeacestories.org slash nuance. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrea Moraskin, 
Faith McClure writes our newsletter, designs our website, and designs and edits Nuance. Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories Project, and I'm Jamil Simon. Thanks so much for listening, and talk soon.